Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by a frequent NCR guest of ours, uh, back to talk about more men's tennis, as he does roughly around this time every year. Ricky Diamond, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me again. Ricky, you were in town to run the marathon again, and you are getting ever closer to uh, Carolyn Wozniacki. That's right. Who ran 326. How was your third Marine Corps Marathon experience, which brought you back to D.C. here? Uh, it was great. Another uh, another great experience. Um, not quite at Wozniacki's level as you mentioned uh she ran 326 um at the new york marathon a couple years ago and i got down to 329 uh this year in at the marine corps marathon in dc which was my goal to break 330 um it was my best time by 13 minutes so i'll take 329 and maybe one day i can uh, get up to wozniacki i wonder if she'll keep marathoning in her in her retirement whenever she does do i mean she could She, she should i mean if she can train in the middle of a professional tennis season and do 326 then think like if she can put in like an actual like marathon training without doing tennis on the side like she could definitely cut it down to maybe you know low threes or something yeah no i would think so for sure and she she ran that yeah like you said with pretty partial training and what made her what made what makes your impressive to me is where, where i think you can definitely get to her it's like i always think people run marathons and like kind of collapse and are like right. need to go on an iv and you're like fine like like within like hours later you're like walking around the city doing stuff <laughs> you're not like there doesn't seem to be any sort of wall you hit which is just impressive and that would not be me and good work yeah i mean i guess i i, I get lucky i guess you know <laughs> I don't, I, it's not luck that, that's skill that's skill uh speaking of luck skill etc we're gonna talk about the men's tennis season 2018 which is usually our more neglected tour on this show um courtney will, courtney is still in asia which is finished covering singapore will be in zhuhai uh this week and we'll talk to her probably once she gets back home uh, but curious, what broad strokes? What do you make of the 2018 men's tennis season? What was it? What 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 happened? Uh, I mean, I guess the overriding first thing that comes to mind is definitely Djokovic. You know, he wasn't even on the radar screen um, in terms of like fighting for Euro number one or even making it to London, and then all of a sudden he comes out of nowhere and wins the last two slams of the year. Um, and he has a chance to get to number one. This oh, uh, oh, great we're, we're, we're recording this. As, after the first day of Paris Bercy. Right, he, he's the clear-cut he, favorite. To he's the favorite to win. This point. Yeah. yeah, so if he he's a little bit behind Nadal, but Nadal does bad this time of year historically. Uh, never won Bercy, and never won the London World Tour Finals either. And so those are good tournaments for Djokovic, right, and yeah. he should, I think he's in pole position, even yeah, if he's yeah. behind. Yeah, for sure. I mean, o- overall, I think it's been a pretty, you know, entertaining season on the men's side. I guess, you know, we've had three of the big four at close to their best with Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic all at times playing well. You think they've been and close to their best? In terms of in terms of success, I mean They're winning. Yeah. I don't know. I just I, I do you think that like what what we've seen from I, I don't I don't think the quality of play I don't think the quality of play is like is their peak. Yeah. But they're I definitely don't think they're, they're basically dominating they're basically dominating the tour, which is what fans like to see. Yeah. For the I, most part. I just feel like I don't know. I feel like for when Federer and Nadal were dominating last year and they won all four slams last year between the two of them, right. I thought it was mainly a reflection of the rest of the tour dropping off. Yeah. Like, I thought they both played fine and good, but not, like, career years for either of them. Right. This year, Federer definitely, I don't think, had a great year. Federer 
uh, one Australia kind of running away, even if the final was a five setter against Chilich. He didn't really get challenged too much there. Well, his toughest challenge was against Burdish, I think, actually, yeah. in the quarters there. Um, well, Chilich in the final. And Chilich in the final, but that was yeah. just a messy match. That right. was a weird match. Yeah, I don't think people actually thought that Chilich was ever going to win. Even, Never. Even when he took it to five. Yeah, I think Chilich had break points very early right. in the fifth, and that yeah. was like the only moment of tension in the entire match. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Federer, I don't think, was very good this year. Uh, Nadal was solid, for yeah. sure, but he missed a lot. But he skipped a lot, also, like Federer, too. But he, this seemed to be Nadal, for the first time, really playing a part-time schedule, which yeah. is totally smart and not um, knockable, as we've said many times in the show. Like, that's just prudent. He's 32, and he should be doing things to preserve his body and to peak at the right times. So and the fact that he missed any walls in Miami and then went on a tear and just dominated Clay, like, that's textbook what he should be doing. Um, even if the returns, I don't know. I, I feel like, honestly, once you get past like seven grand slams at a certain venue, like, I don't know if it gets how much more incrementally impressive it is. Like right, yeah, we know right. that Federer is good at, at Wimbledon. We know that Djokovic is, I don't know what his number is right now in Australia, but we know he's great there. We know that Nadal, obviously, I think the difference between him winning 10 and 11 French Open titles in his career is minimal, oh, yeah, but I, it's, I uh, but it's pretty, it's still impressive, uh, and still running up the score on the record books. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, and this year, and then the uh, U.S. Open, Djokovic won pretty comfortably. Wimbledon, Wimbledon's a good tournament for the men, I felt like. Wimbledon, a lot of the guys were playing well. Federer played pretty well there, uh, or played okay there. Definitely pretty okay. And Nadal and Djokovic both play well at Wimbledon this year. Yeah. Um, so that was, I think, the best of the slams. But overall, I don't know. I mean, well, I, th- still, I, still I, just, think- I mean, you know the stat I'm obsessed with, obviously, which is the, the stat about how now that um, Marin Cilic turned 30. No man, thirty. No man under the age of thirty has won a set in a Grand Slam yeah, singles final. Incredible, which is unbelievable. Generation suck has never been louder. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, and only three of them I think have made finals, which is Team Nishikori and Ronich. Yeah. Like the other guys just aren't there. And so for me, that's why I'm sort of looking at these big four guys still winning slams and being like, this is good, and they're obviously great. But I feel I I want to feel like something's missing. That feels like the obvious thing to say. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I just feel like the common the common tennis fan was well served for, by the, this year. for the most part. They like it when you know yeah. some of them like it when Fed wins, some of them like it when Nadal wins, and they're all generally you know they're all happy when yeah. when those guys are still relevant and w- winning slams, and it doesn't really necessarily matter how they're doing it. Yeah, no, that's true. And if Serena had won Wimbledon, for example, this year, no one would have cared that she didn't face a top ten right. seed on the way. Which I'm like, oh my gosh, Serena's back is awesome. Yeah. And same, it, U.S. Open, she played some tougher players, but still, it's uh, people appreciate the stars doing things. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so all the stars will be accounted for, minus Delpo. Um, actually, let me, let me go back to Delpo. Delpo is the only one we didn't mention at all previously. Delpo is the only person who I think had a, like a legit kind of wire-to-wire great year. Oh, yeah. Maybe he wasn't great in Australia. He lost fourth round to Burditch, but like that's that's not terrible. And, and especially considering his ranking then. Right. And he got to a career high of number three. Um, he won his first Masters in Indian Wells. He made a Grand Slam final for the first time in nine years in New York. Yeah. For me, he's the only one of the top ten, arguably. Maybe Isner. Uh, definitely Anderson. Anderson and Isner, I think, also had really good years. But Delpo, but then he's, I don't know, he's almost like my players feel minus him getting hurt in Shanghai and now missing London officially. Uh, he's the only one for me who should feel like great about his year. But I don't know if you think that's unfair. Oh, yeah. no. is, that, is that unfair to... I mean, Djokovic, if Djokovic comes back and gets in number one, like, you can't knock that. But his first right. half I mean, is he's, so messy. Yeah, he's player of the year, but it was just in a six-month, yeah. or in a five-month span, really. 
Um, oh, but yeah, I mean, Delpo was good the whole year, and his biggest accomplishment was going to be getting through the whole year without without getting injured. But unfortunately, he came up three tournaments short or so of that goal, which is you know tough to see. That is rough. So Delpo being out uh, leaves an opening in the World Tour Finals field, uh, which is pretty much set more or less heading into Paris with a one with a two horse race. Yeah, pretty much going to the final spot. So officially qualified are Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, uh, Zverev, and Anderson. Unofficially qualified, pretty much there are Team and Chilich yeah. are almost certainly going to get there. I think I miscounted because I'm holding up eight fingers already. And then uh, the final spot will go down to Isner or Nishikori. Yeah. It feels to me like Isner's had a much better season than Nishikori. Isner, I don't know. Isner won a Masters title in Miami. He made a semifinal at London, and I'm sorry, Wimbledon, and was, uh, you know, several, it was only two games from the final. Made a quarter in the U.S. Open, and I guess Nishikori did make a quarter at Wimbledon, right? Yeah, and yeah. did and did and then also made a semi at New York, but he just never felt like as in the mix to contend for things. Yeah, maybe well, that, maybe well, that. I don't know if that's I pay more attention to Isner because he's American. No, I mean but, it's definitely true because yeah. I mean it, Nishikori started the season playing cha- challenger events because right. he, he missed the because he was coming back from injury. Yeah, he played and, in and he, I don't think he played Australia, right? Yeah, he came back in February and played challengers. And, and then, Isner didn't win a match, I don't think, till Miami actually. Right, or yeah. all so barely, they, barely won a match. Yeah, anyway. so they both, which is what what kind of what he normally does, except sometimes he does well in Auckland, but yeah. he always struggles in like Delray Beach and those places. Yeah, and, and the Australian Open, he really does well at. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think most tennis fans associate like the heart of the season as pre-US Open which is when Isner was super successful like Miami and Wimbledon whereas Nishikori Nishikori's run kind of started at the US Open like semis the US Open and then this you know during the Asian swing he's I think his record's like 11 and 4 or something he won Tokyo again uh he finished runner-up in Tokyo to Medvedev oh right and then he was runner-up uh in Vienna to Anderson so he had two 500 point runner-ups yeah. Which propelled him past Isner, and Isner didn't play and, Asia, right? Isner didn't play Asia at all. He just had other, a kid, yeah. So otherwise, Isner would still be ahead, most likely. So who would you think makes the more interesting eighth player in this London field, and why? Isner or Nishikori? I would say Isner. And this is going to be. I will agree with you on this, but explain. Cause I think I would most say, people will disagree. Yeah. I would say Isner for a couple reasons. I mean, granted, probably both of us are a little bit biased because we're Americans, and Isner's been the best American player for the better part of the last decade. But um, I mean, one. Nishikori has been in London a lot, oh, wow. and he's never he's made the semis a couple times, but you never feel like he's a threat to like any of the top guys, really. No, it, Nishikori is almost like following in that way, following like an uh, Ferrer footstep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so one, I mean, Isner would just be something new, which is kind of what the tournament needs because in the past few years, like it's still a great tournament, but not the matches aren't exactly you know they don't exactly blow you away all the time. Um, a lot of them are straight set you know, routine matches that sometimes Nishikori is on the losing end of. And it's not a great surface for Isner. It's not a terrible surface for him. It's not, it's not great, but obviously any match that Isner plays, he has a decent chance of losing it and also a decent chance of winning it, you know, no matter who the opponent is. So if, if Isner is in London, he's going to go into every match, you know, feeling pretty decent about his chances. And I think the fans, even though he's not necessarily a fan favorite among most people, Fans at least go into that match thinking, you know, yeah, my, the top guys might be susceptible to a loss here when Isner's on the court. So yeah. he brings he brings a certain level of interest um, to the tournament, even even if people don't necessarily like to watch him play. I see the thing is with me and Isner, like I actually like to watch Isner play. 
I, which I don't say about most big servers, but for some reason, Isner's entire game and everything that he brings, I've seen a lot of Isner in my life. Right. Yeah. As, I, find as him, have I. As, I find him infinitely more watchable than Karlovich. Yeah. Who's the guy gets most compared to, because Karlovich is a servant volleyer and points are quick. Isner will play rallies. Yeah. Isner will go for be an aggressive returner, which Karlovich started doing late in his career too. Yeah. Um, but Isner is aggressive on return. We'll get some break points. Can hit some huge forehands. Oh yeah, his inside out forehands is not Delpo, but it's it's right up there. Yeah, I and mean, he can he can beat players with pretty complete games. Yeah, and and he competes pretty well. He's an interest. I mean, he and he kind of lopes around and kind of makes you feel like I don't know. Even the loping around to me is like almost a positive because it's like some sort of visible something. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's showing you something, right. even if it's. It's kind of like, like, like what Delpo does. Yeah, fair, Delpo, fair does, Delpo does the yeah. same thing. Delpo, they look like they're suffering yeah. constantly, and that's it's, that's it's, appealing in it's a the, weird it's, way. It's the baton death march in between <laughs> points, and then, and then during points they come out and rifle yeah. the biggest forehands ever. So. When they were playing each other in the in the quarters of the U.S. Open, when it was all hot and sweaty, that was a peak. Yeah, yeah, peak <laughs> suffering match for <laughs> yeah, sure. It was. Yeah. No, absolutely. So those two are very much. I mean, so so Isner to me is more interesting also. Like Nishikori, like I said with the Ferrer comparison, he's been in the mix a lot in London, right. and he's a, he's will play pleasing points, but you just never feel like he's actually going to be able to win two matches in group, yeah. especially this year. I'd be surprised, um, and it just will look like everybody else. Isner, Ronich has been to London, yeah, yeah, he definitely has been, but Ronich isn't. But I feel like Isner is still just a different sort of wrinkle, yeah. and Isner, I think Isner's also more interesting to watch than Ronich, who I think is just. A little more robotic how he plays um and doesn't have the clear weaknesses part of what i like about isner is like isner before i always wa- like watching players with clear clear weaknesses like whether it was dementia who couldn't serve or um even like I'm trying to think of who is us even like sort of like a like a jack soccer steve johnson is a clearly much weaker backhand right like seeing someone try to protect that weakness is it, interesting yeah and is for isner it's his backhand and I don't know. That just make that creates an interesting layer. It's Nisha Corey, who's a very good player in every category, yeah, and yeah. not amazing in one per se. I mean, his backhand's really good, but he's not like not winning points first shot with that. His very second serve is pretty bad. Yeah, but there's also there's no way you can like compensate for that, so you right. can't like watch him try to like compensate for his second serve. Yeah. <laughs> so all of it is to say, I think I would like to see Isner make it. I mean, there's there Nisha Corey's in the pole position. He's up 145 points, so he'll. He, Isner has work to do in Bercy. Bercy is a very good tournament for Isner. So okay. we'll, by yeah. the time you listen, this might already be decided if Isner loses his first or second match. Um, and it's possible there could be another withdrawal. I'm a little surprised. Not a little. I'm not surprised, really. It's interesting that Nadal is back for Bercy, which is not a good tournament for him. And a tournament no. he's only played six times in his career, um, which is like half the amount of times he's won some tournaments, it feels like. Uh, across Paris, to name one. He's played, won the French Open 11 times and only played the Paris indoors six times uh yeah i think that it could be if there there could be another spot opening up i would think it could be nadal if he's yeah, I, if, if 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 nadal doesn't do well in bercy and djokovic wins bercy and it all doesn't feel like he's a realistic shot at number one in london where he pulled out after winning after playing one match last year uh maybe he maybe he doesn't play but um no, yeah, his health team's okay i guess and uh yeah and I, mean, I and i think just because the surfaces are similar you know indoor hardcore is relatively not super fast, not super slow. If he's if he actually is planning on playing on London, then getting a couple of matches under his belt in Paris would be a relatively decent tune-up for that. They said, I think I heard them say on Tennis Channel did it, and it always never won an indoor tournament. That could, I mean, wow, that could be right. I but. think I, when they said it, I was like, huh. 
and I couldn't immediately think of one to refute it. But I right. never, I never heard that stat before. God, that would be surprising because the fall swing and I don't know. He never went like Valencia. Did, did he ever play the February indoor swing? He probably yeah. showed up in Rotterdam at some point. Right, I'm that's what I'm trying to think. But I, I guess let he me look. I can look this, this up one second. Yeah. All right, so this was a lie. Um, Nadal has won one indoor hard tournament in his career and one indoor clay. That's kind of an asterisk, but he won indoor clay at the Brazil Open in 2013 when he's making his comeback there. I think that was, what was that tournament called? That was like Sao Paulo, I guess. That was indoors. Yeah, indoor. It's an indoor tournament. Wow. That was in clay, on clay. And then he won the, um, I'm guessing this is what they looked up at Tennis Channel and why they got mixed up. He won the Madrid Masters when it was still an indoor hard tournament. Oh, wow. Back in 2005. Oh, yeah, that's over right. Over Lubicic in a fifth set tiebreak. Wow. Uh, so everything about that sentence is throwback. Fifth set tiebreak, <laughs> Masters final, Madrid, Madrid indoor, indoor hard, wow. Lubicic. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, so he has won one, but not many. It's been a bad time of year for him. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how much of that is him being not good on indoors? Like, if he would suffer in these conditions any time of year, or how much is it about it being the end of the year? I bet it's and mostly it's end just, of the year. And but... it's not when he peaks. Like, I, remember there was, I remember someone saying this. I think it was Renee Stubb said it about Samantha Stoser. Said it like Stoser's obviously famously horrible in Australia. But he she thinks that it's just as much to do with her not being a good starter of the year. Like she she thinks that she just wouldn't be a good out of the gate person anywhere. Which maybe is true. Uh, but No, yeah, I th- I think the majority is the time of year. It'd yeah. be interesting to see if I don't think Nadal would ever go back to the indoor hardcore February swing, but it would be interesting to see what he could do in that when he's yeah relatively fresh he's made five other finals on indoor hard in addition to the two he won he made it to the paris finals first time he played in 07 uh lost got bagel by nalbandian in that final uh he lost the rotterdam final once to andy murray world tour finals to federer world tour finals to Djokovic, and a basel final to federer which i remember that one was that nalbandian year was that the year he went back to back yeah i think went back to back to paris is on fire paris and madrid indoors yeah madrid paris back to back Totally on fire. Large stuff from David Albandian. Yeah. All right. So, uh, David Albandian. Oh, uh, David Albandian made a Wimbledon final one point. Segway yep. to Wimbledon. Speaking of John Isner and boringness, Wimbledon, since we last recorded, and I'll probably talk to Courtney about this too, because I know we talked about it a lot at Wimbledon. I don't remember if on air or not. No, we didn't ever publish our Wimbledon show, actually, now that I think about it. So, we talked a lot about the Isner Anderson match. And I think that our podcast got sort of like drawn out and strained in like, reflection of that match mm-hmm. um do you think wimbledon just announced a couple last week or so that a couple they, weeks ago that they two are, weeks ago, two weeks ago yeah. that they are switching their rule for the final set instead of being full play off the fifth set till you are up by two games you now they now have a tie break at 12 all in the fifth which means you could see a score like five seven six four six three Six, seven, thirteen, twelve. Parentheses five. <laughs> it's a new, it'll be a new look in score lines. Uh, Ricky, what do you think of this uh, rule? Was there, was a change needed? A, and B, was this a good change? I wouldn't say it was absolutely essential. I mean, I can definitely see both sides of the argument. I I didn't think they were going to change it. Um, I was in favor of a change. I think I didn't feel too strongly about it. If I had my preference, I would. If they were going to change it, I would have preferred just at six all, just you know, keep it standard tennis scoring. Um, you know, I like I like tradition. Um, it's just 12, 12 just seems arbitrary, right? Yeah, like why not? You know, why not ten? Why not eighteen? Why not eighteen? You know, yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a little weird if and when we do see that score. I mean, we will see it. Whether it happens next year, we'll see. Right. That's, um, the, that's the other thing. Like, this, I haven't gone through and looked how many times a year this happens. Um, I bet it's less than we think. I bet it's probably that it goes beyond 12 all. I bet it's, at, I bet it averages less than twice a year. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I think, I think that's true. And I, and I bet people think it's more just because they're, like, prisoners of the moment. And they're thinking like that is like a lot of people yeah. are like Isner and that's what made that long, that's what made the what made the Isner Anderson match a tipping point is it was the first time that Isner made a slam semifinal right and it was the first time that Isner well Isner hadn't even made that many quarters before honestly yeah and it was the first time that an Isner match that was on the main stadium of a slam with nothing else going on in late in the tournament had this happen like and this is my feeling which is what he said. I don't remember recording. I said it exactly, but like, this could just be a John Isner rule. Like, oh, yeah. as much it's, as that's not, it is fair. the John. Isner it is the John Isner rule, yeah. and Isner's the only one who really routinely does this. I think yeah. like Query and Chilich got to like sixteen, fourteen, maybe once at some yeah. point. A few and years Query ago. did it with Sanga too. And Query did it with Sanga similar, and, and Isner did it with Sanga also. Yeah. Um, and is and Sanga did it with Ronish at the Olympics. Like it was like 21, oh, yeah. 25, 23. 25, 23. Yeah. But that was the third set though at the Olympics right. in 2012, and and Federer did a Federer, 21 Fed 19, Delpo. I think, or 1917, one of those 1917. Fed Delpo, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, Fed Delpo. Like, I just don't think these happen so much that like this is of grave concern, and yeah. obviously, and, and also Isner is not going to be not going to be around Isner's for that much, longer. that much any longer. <laughs> and like Isner is this remarkably unique, terrible person for this because Isner. When he gets tired, and he the the quality of play in that Isner Anderson match, for the first, definitely for the first two sets, and probably for the first four was really high. Right. But there were a lot of rallies, there were a lot of long service games. Like it took them, and this is part of my thing on the long matches. Like it took them four hours and like twenty four minutes to get to like six all in the fifth. Right. Like the match had already been very long by that point, and so, like I would say already too long. I think that's too long for a sporting event to be four hours twenty four minutes. Um, but if it ended right there, like, okay. But then, for them to keep going on, I understand why that's bad. And it did hijack the tournament. Right. Like, that's all you could watch. And you knew one of these guys would be in the final. And you knew also that this guy was now going to probably be uncompetitive in the final. And we didn't know that the next match was going to go 10-8 in the fifth also, which is not demonstrably, <laughs> which was still like a five-hour-plus match for Nadal and Djokovic in the other semi, which, is, again, I still think is too long, even if it's well below the 12-all tiebreak. And the other thing... I I watched pretty much every I, I watched every point of the fifth set of Isner Mahout live. Mm-hmm. I was live blogging for Espionation at the time, and I have mostly fond memories of that experience, which was the obviously the famous eleven hour five minute match they played seventy sixty eight in the fifth. A song about it in the NCR Vision episode. Three days. Three days. Plaque at Wimbledon, like Muhammad Muhammad Layani becoming a star there, and. Uh, that went to his head later. And and he, um, and yeah, all of it was this big occasion. And for me, when these things happen so infrequently in tennis, like, that one didn't do anyone any harm. Like, it, I mean, obviously, well, Isner, did, Isner it, was not competitive in the next round against Timo DeBacher, but who cared? Yeah. No one's ever going to care about Isner DeBacher to start with in the tournament. I mean, Isner and Mahou both had a little bit of... It took him a while to recover. I guess. But that's probably more I than, guess, probably like, more than mentally and Isner, physically. Didn't Isner beat um, Roddick? Like, oh, that was the year before. Yeah, that was 09, yes. Okay. But, I mean, Isner was, like, competitive again and relatively enough competitive. Right, yeah. And and And, Mahout 
then like became a grass court great player later in his uh, career and yeah, won yeah. Newport and yeah, Sogenbach like, and stuff. Yeah. Like it wasn't like they killed him. Yeah. Anyway, but what was so great about Isner Mahout and what Isner Anderson was also doing is it completely captured the attention of the sports world. Like this is one of those things where you, you I would get texts from people, you know, non tennis friends being like, yeah. Are you watching this? This is crazy, Same. like yeah, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, like these are the as much as they are freak show moments and like weird you know, violating cruel and unusual punishment clause in the constitution moments. Like these are the sort of sideshowy, ridiculous marathon things that make the sport stand out. Like yeah. when John Isner got back from uh, Isner Mahout, he was like invited to do the top 10 list on David Letterman. He was like, a, had his big moment there. I'm sure it'll be, we're talking about, it would be a great 30 for 30 someday. Like John Isner in his otherwise top 10 touching and the best American player at career, uh, We'll never get invited on Letterman again. Not that Letterman's still on, but we'll never like have a moment unless he wins a slam, a slam. Yeah. like to do this. And so for for me, this was like a way, and and it's exciting. Like for me, people have heard me talk about best of five on this show enough. Like what I don't like about best of five, especially, is it takes too long to get to like the really high stakes part of the match. Mm-hmm. These long final sets are all high stakes. Like that's why like with Isner Mahout. You couldn't look away because you were afraid, like, if you went to the, you know, go get a sandwich or something and were gone for 10 minutes, you might miss the end. You were a captive audience. And as much as that's cruel and something, it's still, like, high stakes. That's why I love NHL overtime. We have to keep watching because any, you know, uh, minute there could be a goal that ends the whole thing suddenly in sudden death. That's why people like baseball, like this this 18-inning Dodgers-Red Sox World Series game that just happened. Like, once it's into late in the game, even before the extra innings, like, Every pitch could be a home run, right. you know, and every pitch could like change the game and it keeps you glued to it. And that's something that I think tennis should, should maximize and why I don't like final set tie breaks at the U.S. Open just because like it abbreviates what has been a great thing. And like like the last final set tie break I remember at the U.S. Open, there aren't that many um, that happen, period, because not that many matches reach six all in the fifth or, or third. Third is more common for the women. Yeah. But like Team Nadal, that was a fifth set tie break match this year. Do you remember anything about that tie break? Uh, the overhead on match point. Which he missed? Yeah. Yeah. Which, but that's like, but I mean, I don't know. It just seems like a rushed finish to what has already been such a long form experience. Right. When they already teamed it all, I think, finished in like four hours, 40 something, I want to say, at 2 a.m. or whatever. You know, at this point, just like. Um, if you've gone that far. If you've you gone that well far. Going. Right. And I just think you should get to the finish line quicker, but then have the finish line be extended. Like, don't, don't abbreviate the best part of the match. Which is the part where both guys are within touching distance of winning. Yeah. And anyway, that's my take. And yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I, I think the best, my, my favorite format in tennis is best of three with no tiebreak in the third. The 2012 Olympics were one of the best tennis tournaments ever. If, no. not, <laughs> if not ever. They were so good, that tournament. And everybody showed up, everybody played, and the stakes were high, everyone was invested, and it was men playing like really high stakes best of three tennis, and like the drama did not lack at all. Yeah. And the only time it lacked actually was in the final when it was an anti-climax when Federer was tired from having played. There weren't days off between matches. Uh, I don't think anyway between the semifinal and final for that tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Federer was dead after the 1917 and kind of flopped against Murray in the final yeah. gold medal match. But yeah, I mean obviously, but, but Delco actually won his, so maybe it didn't kill both of them. Clearly, yeah. I mean obviously the best best of five debate is you know for a different time and place, but I feel like in like in certain cases like. I don't know when it's like Nadal versus Djokovic. Like, there are dramatic moments, you know, when you even in the early sets. Like, for example, like at Wimbledon, like, like in the, the quality like, is really high in that one, right? Like, 
the third set, you know, you knew darkness was coming. Like, yeah. Even though the third set wasn't a decisive set, even though it wasn't best of three, like, I think people mostly watch that set thinking the winner of this is going to win the match. Did that turn out to be right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess it did, but it still right. went to six all in the fifth. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, there can be there can be moments, and Djokovic at all is obviously like premium premium match. Like right. They're number one, two, two in the world right yeah, now. Everyone's gonna watch that. Everyone's anyway. gonna watch that regardless. Yeah. And they would also. I just don't think. I remember saying this or not saying this. Um, talk saying this during Labor Cup, and Labor Cup is in terms of the best of whatever debate. Labor Cup is what I call best of two and a half, like with the two sets Super and then breaker. a tie break. Yeah. Like watching Labor Cup, and I know it's an EXO, and I'm not I'm not advocating for this format to be on the general tour, even though I know some people are. I think Steve Simon, notably, is for WTA, is thinking this is a good idea. Like I, when I watch those matches with the full 10, 10 point tiebreak, I never and there's uh, not no ad during the sets, and mm-hmm. so it's full games and everything, which I really like. And that's where I think there is good drama moments. I never felt shortchanged at Labor Cup watching those matches. I never, because most of the 10 point tie breaks managed to be competitive and the stakes are pretty high and it, they take 10 or 12 minutes. Like they're not super, they're not like a coin flipper. Right. Yeah. They're still like, you can't fluke your way through that. I don't know. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's what I want to right. have on the yeah. tour, but I'm saying like, and I heard that from people in the stands too, especially like at Labor Cup, you could get like four matches in a day and you saw a lot of different tennis and, in seven hours, you saw four matches or eight hours. I don't know exactly how long it took. And people like I mean, it. yeah. Even though I know you can't fluke your way through it, but I still feel like tiebreaker is just such way more of a crapshoot than a full set. Yeah. Like you're going to you're gonna get a lot more weird results if you did it that way than if you played out a set. Yeah. No, is that true that you would get more fluke results in a in a final set tiebreak than in an advantage set tie? Like finish that situation? I guess so. In theory, in a final set tiebreaker instead of playing it out, or yeah, in, in, or in a super breaker, in a final set tiebreak, in like a six all tiebreak, do you get more fluke results than than if it was advantage set? You see what I mean? Mm, yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, I don't know. I yeah. would say no. I guess but it's still it's, it's, hard, still, it's, it's still a say. shortened thing, and yeah. you know, still have somebody upset. I mean, like I feel like a lot of upsets of top players do happen in final set tiebreaks, actually. I'm thinking of like Isner losing, to, uh, sorry, uh, Federer losing to Don Skoy. I'm pretty sure it's in a final set. Right, right. Yeah. Um, that match just seared in my mind as being yeah. a ridiculous result. Um, anyway, yeah, I think that I understand Wimbledon probably felt forced to act. That situation, everything that happened in that situation with the final, with that Isner Anderson did kind of was too. I, much. I think the big thing was just that it and then it the, compromised a Grand Slam final. Yeah, the men's final and, and the women's final. The women's final got delayed by hours right, yeah. because. It because the men were still going right, and and you didn't know when the men would finish. Once I got to six all, and they both were looking like they're in pretty good shape. Like, and Djokovic was clearly the better player down the stretch in that match, and he deserved to win. But you just didn't know it was gonna. And this uncertainty, yeah, I I selfishly like it. I I think that yeah, the women have women very rarely break twelve all, but the best women's match of the year. I think, or the most compelling was Lauren Davis and Simona Howell, yeah, awesome. which went 17-15 in the third. And that would have been stopped at 12-all um, when things kind of started really getting good. I don't yeah. know, like for me, like when you, it's just the stakes get higher and higher and higher and don't abbreviate that part, but just abbreviate the earlier part. That's what I think. Yeah. I've said enough about that. Yeah. Talking in circles now. <laughs> um, elsewhere in London, so we said the field is shaping up. 
Uh, there have been a bunch of players. Three of the players made the semifinals of the World Tour Finals last year are not going to make it back this year. Not really coming close, any of them. No, none of them. Um, uh, on ranking points, Cliffs, the, the champion was Gregor, Gregor Dimitrov, who pretty quickly, who I think was a very pop, was a very popular pick for like winning Australia this yeah. year. People like, he won London. He's in good shape. And he, he did play keep, well there. He can keep it rolling. He's, he played well there for a while. He, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, he... Um, well, he won a good match against Kyrgios. He did, but before that, he'd really struggled against Mackie McDonald. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Uh, went, went deep five with Mackie McDonald, yeah. and then he lost badly to Kyle Edmund. And he looked really bad in Brisbane, first week of the year. He, I think he saved match points against John Millman, who, as it turned out, had a great year. We didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and then struggled and eventually lost to somebody. Uh, who did he lose to? Who won Brisbane? Curious. Uh, he lost to Curious. Oh, yeah, Curious beat. I think yeah, he yeah, lost yeah, to yeah, yeah. Harrison beat Diminar, and then Diminar, and then Harrison lost to Curious. Yeah, I think so. I think Curious beat Dimitrov, or somebody beat. Anyway, yeah. Dimitrov did not look good out, out of gates. And, but he's stayed pretty healthy, I think, the whole year. He yeah. just sort of just struggled. Yeah. Um, so he's ranking Cliffs number one. He's going to fall, I think, outside top 20. He's around 10. He's going to go to 20. Similar kind of drop for the guy he beat in the finals, who's Davi Goffin, who had the who had the one of the weirdest tournaments ever in London last year, beating Nadal, beating Federer, and losing to Dimitrov twice. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's wild. That's unbelievable. Uh, and Dimit Goffin has had injuries during the year again, um, and I forget what exactly his injuries fluke were. Fluke ones. He had the he had the fluke uh, d ball Hit off by the ball racket in the right. against Dimitrov. Against Dimitrov, yeah. yeah. Dimitrov still tormenting him, yeah. blinding him. Then he had another one later in the season, too, I think. Yeah, I forgot what it was. It wasn't as fluky. It was just like a, you know, it was a knee or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and then he also had the fluke one at the French Open in 2017. Right. That kind of so started had, the trend. So he's had bad luck. Yeah. Um, but so he drops around 20, 21 or so. Um, and then there's Jack Sock, who uh, made it to the semifinals of London, as a very which is an unexpected semifinal qualifier, because when he, he completely... No one expected him to still be... I think when probably going to Paris, he'd be like, oh, I guess Jack Sock is still te technically, mathematically in contention for London. But not um, really. But not really. Yeah. Hypothetically, technically, yeah, hypothetically no, no one, whatever. No one was discussing that he had no. a chance. And then he and then the Bercy draw totally broke his way. He got an incredibly good look at the draw and got to play a very easy final couple matches, uh, beating Benito in the semis and Krajinovic in the final. And he made London, and he actually totally... You know, pulled his weight in London and won matches against Zverev and Chilich, which yeah. was unexpected. Yeah, he, ba he, made... he basically had a what amounted to be a quarterfinal match against Zverev. Yeah, it was win or go home. And he the, won it at the end of the round robin stage. Yeah, and he won it. And so, um, and he this year, as, I don't know if we discussed him much on the show, but he's only won seven matches and like seven, Brutal. and he's just been awful. And he's been playing consistently throughout the year. Oh yeah, he's like he's seven. Played, he's like seven and twenty-one. He's played a full schedule. Yeah. And he's just not been literally anybody good. And no injuries. And no, no injuries. At least none none that we know of. No. And so here's Jack's uh, players he's beaten this year. Um, and it started right like with Dimitrov, but more extreme. It started right away with Sock. Sock got to Auckland. It was immediately terrible. It just seemed over it and seemed out of shape. It wasn't competing well. Auckland talked about revoking his appearance fee right off the bat and just kind of went downhill and stayed downhill from there. And he had opportunity after opportunity. The draws he got were not hard. Yeah. That's what was so amazing about Jack Sock. Like he's even seated this week in Paris. He got a buy this week in Paris because it's like because he padded his ranking so much at the end, then people weren't passing him at a quick enough rate for him to fall. And he right, he had fourteen hundred 
points from Paris and yeah. London that stayed on his right. sheet so this whole year. Yeah, so he's currently ranked, I think, 23rd. But if he loses his first match in Paris, which we're recording before, he'll be uh, 150 or so. And he'll be unseated in Australian Open qualifying after being the number eight seed last year in the main draw. It's it, I've never seen a drop like it. No. Like I really haven't. And I'm, that's not that's not injury. It's not injury, right? It's not yeah. like it just went AWOL. He's still been there and still competing. And yeah. obviously, what we haven't mentioned is he's been he won two Grand Slams and doubles, and yeah. it's now he will be he will be in London again. Yeah, he'll still be in London in, again. Which doubles, is amazing. Uh, winning with Mike Bryan twice, but here's who he's beaten in singles. He beat in Delray Beach. He beat J.P. Smith. In Indian Wells, first round, he beat Thomas Fabiano. In Miami, he beat Yuki Bambri. In Houston, he beat Horatio Ceballos. In Rome, he beat David Ferrer, which is one that's kind of the outlier, even though Ferrer then has like tanked since then and semi-retired now. And then he didn't win again until the U.S. Open when he beat Guido Andreozzi. And then he beat Ilias Emer in Stockholm. End of list. Like I don't, know, only, if, I don't yeah. know if any of those guys are still top 100. I think, is it Ceballos? Doubtful. No, it's about is one eighty six now. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. His only his only decent win is over someone who's now effectively retired. Ferrer, yeah, yeah. who's now who's been like on a downside this whole year. Yeah. Um, what? And he just lost back to back to Golbus. I have Golbus I mean, is playing decent, but it's still pretty bad. Golbus, I mean, Sock is Sock. To his credit, Sock has admitted and admitted pretty early on in the year this has been a horrible year for me like he wasn't like sugarcoating it yeah he was like this, oh yeah this I mean, he's, been, made, this he's, made, he's made he's made he's made jokes on social he's made media jokes about it, about it but yeah. like what do you think happened to him i mean and like and obviously his ranking was inflated and i think it's fair to say inflated by this incredibly soft master shot he got last year and he almost lost first round of that masters he was down five one in the third to kyle edmund and then won but what what happened what got him so far, and yeah. then what stopped getting him so far? Right. Yeah. I mean, what it, do you think? It, it, it's close to inexplicable, but he. I mean, he does have one of the biggest forehands in the game. You know, everyone loves talking about how his RPMs are even higher than Nadal, but, um, and that's what carried him to, you know, Paris and London success, as did obviously a favorable draw. But um, as you mentioned, he's gotten favorable draws again this year, and, and it hasn't done anything. Yeah, so, the guys, the guys he's lost to, I can name also. Yeah, like they have not been good players. Like yeah. he's gotten, and so players Jack Sock has lost to this year are Peter Goyovchik, Yuichi Sagita, Riley Opelka, Ernesto Escobedo, who's had not a not good year at all, Feliciano Lopez, Borna Chorich, Taylor Fritz, Pablo Cuevas, Philip Kohlschreiber, Taylor Fritz again, Jurgen Zop, Dan- Daniel Medvedev, Daniel Brands. That was in qualies of Eastbourne. Uh, Matteo Berrettini, Daniel Medvedev again, Hyun Chung, Nicholas Bazalashvili, Nicholas Bazalashvili, <laughs> Peter Goyovchik, Ernest Golbus, Ernest Golbus. <laughs> like, very few of them were top 100 players. Yeah. And it, the ones who were were not like seeds because he was always getting seeded at tournaments. I don't know. I mean, it, it's. I mean, it could be a question. But, it, what, but it, if, if his forehand was so good, I don't think it stopped being good per se. Right. Is that, and, I remember, yeah. and I remember Dimitrov, one of the interesting moments, which I think I mentioned on the Labor Cup podcast I did with Liz Clark. Like one of the best moments of Labor Cup, most telling moments of Labor Cup was when Dimitrov was coaching uh, Kyle Edmund during their match, and Kyle Edmund was playing Sock, and Sock was actually one of the was the best player on the team world team because he won all his doubles matches and got right. them like six points or something yeah. out of their total eight. Uh, so he was he carried the team. Yeah. Um, but Dimitrov said like every time you hit the if you can hit the ball to his backhand twice in a point you're gonna win every time. Yeah. He said that like bluntly to Kyle Edmund, and it was just like. Wow, like if the book is this clearly out on sock, like what was it not that bad before? 
Right. He's not. Like, he doesn't look like he's in very good physical shape, but he wasn't in great shape last year when he won Paris. We just saw a replay. He didn't look like he was in great shape then. Yeah. I mean, and, physically, everything yeah. seems pretty similar. Yeah. I mean, it could be a question of motivation. Like, when you when you win a Masters 1000, get to the semis of London, you're in the top 10, and you're young, the next natural progression is kind of to get in the Grand Slam yeah. winning discussion. And, and if Sock, if Sock doesn't feel... Like, he's capable of taking the next step, then there's nowhere to go but down. And the money was rolling in. I've heard from people who work for tournaments that, like, after he won Paris and made his semis London, his agent was calling tournaments, being like, hey, here's my top ten American player. He's a right. Masters champion and made his <laughs> finals here, and you better be giving him a lot of money to show up to your tournament. And some of them said yes, some of them said no. Yeah. Um, and he was riding high and probably very comfortable and, and, had a, and didn't show up in shape to the beginning of the year and probably didn't get much better. And the doubles, it's a testament to his talent. I've been saying for years that he was the best doubles player in the world. Oh, yeah. Him and the doubles, the best doubles yeah. player in the world. I think so, too. Um, Sox number one, for yeah. sure. And he's finally showing, getting playing doubles regularly enough. He's finally qualified for London for the first time. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does. Assuming he doesn't have, doesn't like go make semis in Paris, so his ranking really will fall hard. I don't know, talking about like the, his reputation and everything i don't know what he's gonna do on tour i don't think he's gonna get a lot of wild cards i don't think jack sock has earned a lot of goodwill around tour no there's general de- deportment and obnoxiousness and obstreperousness around tour and difficulty to deal with he's heard a lot of people the wrong way and been not nice to them on the way up who they probably won't help him on the way down um i don't think he meaningfully sells tickets or anything i don't think he's a popular player in the u.s at all no. uh i don't know it'll be interesting to see will he scale down I mean, if he if he makes a big run like in the Australian Open, if he qualifies and makes fourth round and gets back towards top hundred, this could be a very short issue. But if he has to decide between staying in the top two hundred in singles and playing and you know or going to challengers, I mean, I'm betting if he's not in Australia still, he could play at the Newport Beach one hundred and fifty k and Dallas and try to do stuff there. But he's not. I don't know. I feel like those guys will also just relish the guys of that level will relish a chance to play him. Cause I mean, you gotta be tough. I talk, remember talking to Jeannie Bouchard about this. Like when Jeannie has had to scale down, like she is then such a target. Cause obviously people see Jeannie as being this, you know, people resent Jeannie for sure. Yeah. For being this popular girl who gets has a huge social media following that maybe outpaces her results, especially recently. And they just, they sort of lick their chops when they get the chance to play her. Even if they're number 400 in the world, they will summon the best match of their lives to play against Jeannie Bouchard. Oh yeah, for sure. And all the pressure's on her and anything less than a title at a challenger feels like a disaster. And it's tough. And like those players don't win challengers. Like Golbis, we mentioned, who's come back in the top 100 now, he scaled down a lot. And he never made a challenger final. Wow. In all that time. Like it's hard down there. Like yeah. mentally, when you're somebody who doesn't feel... Like, you belong. If people look at you like you don't belong at this level, and you're not playing so well, and you're not so good. Like, Nisha Corey, when Nisha Corey came back, I think he um, I think he won the second challenge he played. He, I think he lost first round in, Dal- in Newport, but won Dallas, I want to say, this year. Uh, yeah, if, if you're not ready for it, it's, it's tough. And it, it's it's not, like, it's not just so easy to say, oh, you're great. If you're a top 100 player, just go down and get some easy wins. Like, no. no like, the depth that. in tennis... People talk about in the top 100 now, which is definitely there on both tours. More of the women, but definitely there on both tours. Like, it's still good in the top two. Yeah, especially, 
especially higher level, higher higher level challenger events. I mean, right. those draws are legit. And like even when yeah. Jack went down to and played Eastbourne Qualies, yeah, that was that was that had to be tough for him, like yeah. just mentally, because you have so much pressure on you, and you have everything to lose in that match and nothing to gain. Yeah, yeah, and like and like you said, if Sot if Sot goes back to the challenger level next year when he's ranked like number one fifty five, whoever. And he won't but, be he won't be a top seed in these challengers though. Right, yeah. Whoever beats whoever beats him, hypothetically, assuming people beat him at the challengers, they're they're not gonna say, Yeah, I just beat with the world number one fifty five. They're gonna be thinking, Yeah, I just beat Jack Sock, former you know, former top ten player. And three like, times slammed up with champ. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. So they're gonna be motivated. Absolutely. So he's in a tough spot here. It'll be interesting to follow his uh his arc and to know if he ever talks more about what exactly went off the rails for him. Because I'm sure there I'm sure there are answers and he like also started life or whatever. well he started dating that british girl oh katie, katie bolter katie bolter i don't know Bol- is it bolter, bolter. yeah i don't i guess I, th- I think they're official but they were dating at some point for sure i don't know i guess they're i think they still i don't are, know yeah. well wish them <laughs> well knows? yeah uh yeah that sprung up during wimbledon yeah I remember hearing about that transpiring in the village yeah uh <laughs> yeah um yeah there's uh hopefully he gets it hopefully it's not so far off or at the very least and this is the other question like I remember we had this debate with Sock before when he, after Rio, we were saying, is it, was, is it fair to call him a doubles specialist, quote unquote, when his doubles is so much better than his singles? Oh, yeah. And now it's, the rankings are really backing it up. He's number two in doubles, I think, and number, uh, or number six, or he's good in doubles anyway, and uh, bad in singles. Like, at some point, but the thing is, the money is so much better in singles. That yeah. he, still, he may have still made, didn't, make much less than singles and doubles this year, which is insane. Wow. That's um, like I can actually pull up that number. <laughs> That's amazing. So this year in singles, Jack Sock has made round up very slightly six hundred thousand dollars. In doubles, he made one million dollars. Wow. And he had an amazing doubles year in a horrible singles <laughs> year. Like it's so it should be so much more tilted than that and it's just not. Um anyway, do you think Jack will come back next year? Do you think he'll be a top fifty player in the next year? And, and do you think that, um, or should, or if it doesn't come easily for him, should he think about being a doubles specialist more through and through and like putting singles on a back burner more officially because he's so good at doubles and he could make a very nice career for himself in doubles. But I, I, I don't, I, I, he's still young ish. I mean, he's 26, which is younger than when most guys the thing specialize. Is, the thing is his singles. Officially. It's it's clear that his singles losses aren't hurting his doubles game. Yeah. So I don't feel, I don't know what the advantage is. Well, like 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 he can't get any better in doubles than he already is, even if he stops playing singles. The issue for him, I guess, will be is scheduling. Like, if does he go play a challenger or a singles if he can only get into Uh, mass if or masters if he can only get into single uh, doubles. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean that, I I would guess no because the only way he's going to build back his I think he wants to build back his singles ranking. And in order to do that, he's going to have to schedule challengers. And it'll be interesting and, and to see qualifiers. what happens with him, his partnership with Mike Bryan. If that, when Bob comes yeah, back. back yeah, Bob could be out for Bob could still be out for a while. We don't yeah. know. Bob could be out forever. He could be out forever. Um, but if he, if he comes back or Mike's still looking for a steady partner, if Mike is there in, you know, Mike's like, I want to play Madrid. Like, I want to play this, this Masters event or Monte Carlo or whatever. And Jack's like, I don't know. I kind of want to play Tallahassee. <laughs> like that's that's the problem and right, not yeah. i think mike would understand yeah. and could find someone else and wouldn't need to play with him full-time to make london but it's 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 gonna be tricky it's gonna be fascinating to watch 
I mean, it seems like if Bob doesn't get back, it seems like Mike's just going to bounce around with some different partners. He so, could. He I could. mean, that's what he's been doing recently. But. Yeah. All right. That's Jack Sock. How about the other guys who fall off the cliff? Uh, Goffin and Dimitrov. Dimitrov especially. Dimitrov, what do you think? Is Dimitrov, was last year a fluke? Was last year a mirage? Or was this year just bad? I mean, like, or was this year more, was this year an outlier? Was last year an outlier? Is the truth somewhere in between? Like, where do you, because Gregor it, finished 2017 at number three. Yeah. It, I mean, it's tough to say. Now I think we top 20. I think the smart money is on something in between. I mean, to me, Dimitrov doesn't have enough offensive weapons to win win grand slams at least not in the era of Djokovic and Nadal and Federer I think who were just two good defenders you mean well just too good in general yeah but yeah two good defenders too I mean they they can beat Dimitrov at his own game um I think in the post Nadal Federer Djokovic era he would be among those guys who have an opportunity to start winning slams even at his current level but right but right now I don't think he has the slam winning. I don't, I don't think he has the talent to win a slam. So I feel like in terms of that last year was overly successful and we can't really expect that to happen again. Um, but I also don't think he's really as bad as he was this year. No, it's hard to pinpoint why he's so bad. I mean, it seems like he and Valverde are a decent match and like, and it doesn't look like they're parting ways even despite this year. So I don't think that's like an issue. We'll see if they part in the off season. I don't know. Right, yeah, we'll see. He's working. I, he's Agassi consulting with him this weekend. Bercy, you know, it, may, it just may just be Agassi. Just, Agassi, I would think at least would had some some more punch to his game. Like Agassi yeah. did not go out there and feather the ball around gently. Oh no, and politely, especially and on the elegantly, especially on the return. Like right, the way that Dimitrov sometimes can. Dimitrov yeah. always always plays an incredibly aesthetically pleasing game. Yeah, but it can be too feathery and too light. Uh, a lot oh, yeah. and, lack, and lack a lot of Agassi teeth. will take it to you Agassi will absolutely punch you in the face yeah uh, game wise and maybe maybe off court too uh, but it's hard to see Agassi doing a long term he was, ba- based he was on... theoretically in it with Djokovic long term until they stopped <laughs> yeah um, and Agassi you know his kids are getting older he's more free time maybe I don't know yeah, you know, it's yeah. interesting to see him more in the mix that's an interesting sort of pairing and uh, it's good to see Dimitrov still trying new things. But yeah, but uh, as for as for Goffin, I think I think he'll be back. I think he'll I mean, be fine. I, I love his game. I think it was really just all injuries this year. If you can say when he stays healthy, he should be yeah a solid six through twelve kind of player. Yeah, same, yeah, yeah, that's what I think for sure. Mentioning Agassi, uh, Agassi's chief rival was discussed a lot this week on Twitter. Pete Sampras, and there was a article uh, a mailbag column. Drew McGarry, who's a tremendous writer for Deadspin, writes sort of columns, very rarely mentions tennis, but tennis got two mentions in a countdown he did of the most boring athletes of all time. Wow. And the first one, or the lower-ranked one, went to Martina Hengis, which made no sense to anybody. She was the only woman on the list. It was a very bizarre inclusion. But number two, second, the runner-up and most boring athlete of all time in his list was Pete Sampras. Wow. Um, I forget the rest of his list, but Pete Sampras... I, I saw that and I was like, I nodded. I was like, yeah, that seems exactly right. <laughs> to me, Pete Sampras was an incredibly, incredible player, incredibly successful player, an incredibly boring player, incredibly unengaging, incredibly uncompelling, incredibly uh, routine, incredibly unemotive, uh, and, you know, played, played a style that just I didn't gravitate towards at all. Uh, and just was not, a, was not a personality I gravitated towards at all either. And wasn't especially... I was obviously he played way before I was a pro covering the sport, 
but I saw him in person playing several times. I went to the U.S. Open final when he played against Hewitt in oh one oh one or oh one he won in oh two yeah and then i saw him in the semis super saturday in 2000 2001 also um or 2002 i guess and when he when he and agassi both won yeah set up that final and the crowds got crowds were behind him because he was the american in those matches but I, he's not someone who's ever discussed very much anymore um well, he's totally, I, I mean, he's totally he's disappeared, disappeared off the tennis exactly, circles. Yeah. Completely. I mean, even like, even by the Agassi standard, he's also pretty much disappeared, but Agassi will occasionally show up and will yeah. do sponsor appearances for Lavazza tournaments and whatever. Uh, write books. Sam, exactly. Write, write, Sam, and write controversial books. Sanford's, ever, Sanford's yeah. wrote a book. Uh, Sanford's did write a book. Mm. It was nowhere near as headline making as Agassi's book, no. obviously. No, no crystal, <laughs> no did, crystal he, meth. He, he didn't have as much to say. No, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, and he obviously, and he and Sampras, he and Agassi got into that ugly moment in the charity match at Indian Wells. Oh, God. That was <laughs> terrible from Agassi. Yeah. Um, what do you think? What do you think makes a boring athlete? Cause some people, some of the responses I saw from tennis people and tennis veterans and tennis insiders who rejected this idea, this slur against Pete Sampras calling him boring, some of them basically said, like, how could anyone so great be boring, which is one take. And also how could, um, and just like kind of made you think like it would make an argument against any athlete being boring. Yeah. So my questions for you are, can an athlete be boring? And if so, does Pete Sampras fit that description? I or think if it, not, it, does, who does? I'm, I'm in the same boat as you on, on that. Um, and similarly, I was, you know, I wasn't covering the sport when Sampras was around, but I was already watching it. Yeah. Um, and I was I was an Agassi guy, um, and I feel like that that kind of accentuated San Francisco's boringness because Agassi was like the complete opposite, and they were like you know obviously they were huge rivals. Whenever you think of San Francisco, you think of Agassi and vice versa, and Agassi was you know the charismatic you know long hair rebel. All, all that stuff and even when he had a shaved head that was exciting too yeah yeah so everything, everything any level of hair of that he was just thrilling yeah so they were like they were like complete opposite so that even that brought out san francisco's boringness even more um but yeah he just how about game wise you think his game it, was boring i think his game was i don't know if it was boring it's just it's not entertaining i yeah. mean it's a lot of it's a lot of serve bot you know it was a quick, lot quick of, points. Exactly. He, I mean, his on the run forehand was one of the best shots of all time. Yeah. I will give him that. Um, and he had a sky hook kind of shot that was kind of a little bit yeah, flashy. Yeah, the jump, the yeah, jump, the, the jump, jump smash the jump was pretty smash, flashy. Yeah. But like at all, those were like rare interludes. And like yeah. his bread and butter, he came at a time when when Sampras was dominating. This is part of why I gravitated towards women's tennis when I first got into tennis, which was in the late mid to late nineties, mm-hmm. was because I found the women's game so much more relatable as a kid playing tennis, long points, longer yeah. points, yeah. Uh, baseline points. Like I could not watch Sampras or even Isovich or Krychek and think like, I'm going to go out to the park and do that. I just couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Especially the courts were some of the balls in the courts were so much faster. There were so many aces serving volley. Like I understand that it was efficient, effective tennis, but it was also unattainable and one-dimensional. And that's what I think people, one of my other sort of tennis hot takes, I think people who yearn for serve and volley forget how boring serve and volley was. Yeah. I think serve and volley as a one-size, one-strategy way that people played it, people serve and volleyed on every point or 90% of serve points. Like, yikes. It was, just, it was over so quickly. And Sampras would serve and had a good serve. So you got a lot of aces, but also a lot of like, you know, 
shots where he get a bad reply. The right. returning was bad right. in that era, which is why Agassiz stood out as a rival because he was a very good returner at a time when people weren't returning well, and why Hewitt later on would really get the Stampers pretty well. Yeah. Um, he, and court, he, I mean, courts were faster. Courts so. were faster, and the balls yeah. were faster, and the rackets did racket technology had picked up pretty well so that you could yeah. hit big bombs and just getting cheap volleys to knock off at net like it was just boring and it just yeah. and aesthetically his shot his shots were a little weird he was good at controlling points but didn't do it and federer is another guy who was very dominant in his in his day also and also was a good serve and kind of plays an all-court game but federer does it with so much more um i don't know exactly to sing, exactly to say it. i want to say flair, flair. i want to say I want to say sort of showman, showmanship. I want to say, you know, uh, touch or, or just sort of, just sort of graceful, graceful, Val- just all Val- yeah, these, these things that, like, and just yeah. this more and charisma in this yeah. way that Sampras didn't have. Sampras was more rigid and yeah, and and emotion. There was definitely yeah, more emotion but, to Federer. Yeah. But even honestly, just on the conditions part, if you go back and watch um, the 2001 match between Sampras and Federer, the only time they ever played at Wimbledon, uh, and with Sampras losing in the fifth set. That was a boring match. Like, it was all very, very short points. And it yeah. was Sampras essentially, or sorry, Federer, essentially playing Sampras era tennis at Sampras. Yeah. And beating Sampras at his own game. And it's just not the kind of Federer that looked good. And I think the player who I think gets not enough credit for sort of changing the direction of tennis was Leighton Hewitt, who was the first guy who really played what tennis turned into, which was this sort of counterpunching baseline speed movement oriented game that was enough to disrupt mm-hmm. them and and when Sampras and Hewitt were playing early on even if it was a one-sided rivalry uh it, I think it really helped get tennis into this sort of golden era type stuff and then Nadal came along as a much better Hewitt right uh and and changed it but yeah for me Sampras is very boring yeah. and I think there can be boring sports boring athletes in any sport you know I, I think plenty of uh plenty of players are boring I'm trying to think who else was on his list who was number one uh, I'll look it up. Number one for, for Drew McGarry was uh, Patrick Ewing. Hmm. That was boring. Yeah. I can't say I remember much about. No, um, yeah, it was a tough call. Uh, Brooks Kupka, <laughs> number three. <laughs> nice. Tim Duncan, number four. Ooh, I can see that. Lance yeah. Armstrong, number five. That's eh, debatable. I don't actually agree with that pick. Yeah. Uh, Peyton Manning, six. Don't love that one either. James Harden, seven. Art mm-hmm. Monk, eight. Tom Glavin, nine. Wow. Uh, Craig Biggio, ten. So wow. there's like a there's all over the map in this in these picks. Wow. Uh, Curtis Martin, eleven. David Robinson, thirteen. Bill Russell, fourteen. Spurs hater. Yeah. Anyway, I mean the Spurs were thought of as a boring team. Even if they're a great <laughs> they team. Boring, yeah. And so I just I sort of I reject the notion that an athlete can't be boring. Yeah. I think because I think athletes can be interesting, right? Yeah. And so to that end, like if you think that like Gail Monfils is a fascinating, entertaining, interesting player, someone has to be. And maybe you don't. Maybe you think he's too far to that clownish level. But someone has to be on the opposite end of that. Right. And, you know, I think that Sampras absolutely fits that. I think yeah. that um, it's I've, totally fair in the modern game to say that Isner or Anderson or Ronich or on the opposite end of Ferrer or a um, uh, Nisha Corey, I guess, even, or uh, Schwartzman. If you think one of those styles of tennis is boring, or if you think, I don't know, um, who's on the women's side? Wozniacki's a boring player. If you think uh, someone who's a ball, who's a, like a ball basher, like Pliskova, people think Pliskova's boring. Like, mm-hmm. I don't agree with all of those names I just mentioned being boring, but I certainly don't reject the idea that an athlete can be boring. Right? You can find an athlete boring. But I, and I think, and I think what, what Sampras is so unique 
is that he was around all the time because he had a long successful career of winning slams across 13 seasons. First yeah. one, 1990, last one, 2002 and make winning 14 grand slams and being the greatest of all time. And still, it's not captivating anybody. Yeah. Like he's not remembered. He's not revered. He's not, people aren't intrigued by him now. And that's, I think to have that much success and to leave that little impression on people. Do you it, think that takes some exceptional, do you think that's more, more about his, it's obviously a product of both, but do you think it's more about his game style or more about his character? Like, I, I feel like if Agassi had the same game game style as Sampras, he would still yeah, be considered an interesting person. I agree. I agree. I think it's both. But I think yeah. the character probably is the more defining factor. Right. I mean, I think even someone like uh, Andrew Pekovic, I don't think she has the most fascinating game at all. Yeah. Like, she's I think, a fascinating person. Right. But she's, she, you get interested <laughs> yeah, and invest no, in her because of what yeah. she brings off court and the on-court interviews and some personality she shows on court. But like exactly. her game itself, if it was like a video game player playing that way, you wouldn't be like, wow, that's unique and interesting. I really want to know more about that person. But yeah. she's she's obviously far, far into the spectrum. I can't imagine anyone reaching her bar of yeah. in, you know, engagingness or entertainingness, but even grading on a lower curve than that, I think Sampras still... Sampras is, had the same game, more or less, as Ivan Isevich. Yeah. And he, people love Ivan Isevich. <laughs> yeah, and Ivan exactly. Isevich might well get into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah off the strength of one Grand Slam win yeah. because he was just such a fan favorite and captured the hearts and minds of people yeah. um, with 1 14th of the... I mean, none of Sampras' titles will ever get talked about as much as even Isovich's no. one title. Yeah, yeah definitely. So, I, I remember back in Gullis' peak, like in 2014 or so, he had that he had the famous or infamous quote about calling Federer and Nadal Djokovic, they're all boring players. Yeah. And obviously that was in reference to like I mean, their games. Some people think the Dolls' game is boring, but obviously it was more in reference to their off court. Yeah. Right. That's that's what I'm saying. Like, obviously, he was referring to their. He was like mentioning how none of them give like interesting interviews, which is, you know, sometimes a fair assessment. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he was he was or certainly not she, risky interviews. Not like risky interviews. Yeah. 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 And so Gull was Gull was blasted them for being boring players. <laughs> yeah. And that's and I think that's his prerogative. I mean, yeah. certainly there are players who I can name in the sport who are boring to talk to. And it makes the fans less interested in them. I mean, it's harder to tell your story if you don't help. Yeah. And again, I was not in San. I don't remember hearing much about San Francisco's press conferences. Um, and I don't know how open he. I don't remember him being especially open with journalists per se. Uh, but they're also yeah, just. I unlikely. just don't know how much there was to say. Yeah. It. Yeah. And people who worked with him thought highly of him as peers. Obviously, had a hell of a lot of respect for him. He beat them constantly. Uh, but yeah, I think he's. I think the verdict is boring. Yeah. More. Uh, and I think more, that. I think that. Tennis, men's tennis was lucky to survive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Honestly. And that's why Federer, part of why Federer was welcomed with such ecstasy is because he brought this departure from the Sampras doldrums. Speaking of superlatives, we can go quickly through the ATP ballot. It yeah. just came out for the awards. We'll go through this very quickly. Yeah. Uh, ATP awards ballot is out. There are three categories. Most improved, best comeback, and sportsmanship. Uh all of which are problematic in their own ways. Yes. Uh, but here are the nominees for most improved. Uh, they ask you to pick four players in order of preference. I actually did not fill out a ballot this year. I was traveling and, and missed it completely, so I have not voted on this. Most improved, uh, Nicholas Bazalashvili, who improved uh, from 59 to 23 in the ranking. I actually didn't realize he was as high as 59 last year. Yeah. Uh, Marco Cecchinato, improved from 110 to 21. Borna Chorich, 48 to 19. Alex Dimenauer, 208 to 33 kyle edmund and these are rankings as of october 8th by the way uh kyle edmund 50 to 14 nicholas jari 100 to 48 daniel medvedev 65 to 22 john milman 128 to 34 
and Stefano Tsitsipas, 91 to 15. Wow. Who stands out to you most there in that group? Uh, I'm actually going to go with Vasilashvili. Okay. He, he didn't make the biggest jump, obviously, but a couple a couple guys in on this list are more, I feel like are more, some are like more up-and-comers, so like, yeah, just like, the progression is like more natural. Totally, like Diminar and Tsitsipas are in that category, and they're even Chorich. Like, yeah, they're more like newcomers than like the yeah. most improved. I mean, Chorich to a lesser extent. Um, Chechinato is close, but like he got all of his results from basically one tournament. Or the majority of his results yeah. from one tournament. His overall feel... his overall record is twenty one and nineteen, which is not and yeah, and, not... and Vasilashvili is only twenty seven and twenty five, as of this, which I think was before uh, he won Beijing. Yeah, uh, so he was on this, so his ranking's gone even higher. He's top twenty now. Yeah, I just feel like Vasilashvili had more sustained results from start to finish. Like Hamburg, obviously U.S. Open, tough loss against Nadal in the third round, I think it was, um, and then yeah, he just won Beijing. Just from start to finish, it seemed like his game was just a lot more improved than it was last year. Whereas, like I said earlier, the other guys are kind of like more up and comers, or a chunk of their points were all from like one one spot. Yeah, Mil- Milman's Milman's up there. I would pick my my pick would be Milman or Chekinato. Or yeah. I, well, I think the thing with what makes me pick Milman, and I think Vasilevsky is a good pick too. Is these are players who are never supposed to be things, yeah. or like never supposed to be great players. Like John yeah. Milman made a U.S. Open quarterfinal this year. Yeah, you could not have told me that would happen at the uh, beginning of this year, especially being fed in the process. Right, and like Basilashvili winning Beijing, you could also never tell me he won a 500 event like no. on hard courts, like a big one. Yeah, like he could win Hamburg maybe, and he actually did make a Hamburg final. Like that, he's put himself in the mix and sort of changed his story. That's what I think of as most improved, it's being sort of like unexpected, not like Diminar, who we knew was a great player, right? Yeah. And who and has since passed in charge, right? And since passed in charge also, yeah. And Kyle Edmund. I mean, unexpectedly got better than expected but he also had a very inconsistent year yeah um he was already pretty well established but if, I pick, if i have to pick one guy i'll pick millman and i think he's millman also, might win it just he had such a notable win yeah he's also nominated for the next award which is comeback but for me millman went so far above his previous you know he was like not ever close to being a top 50 player before no so it's not really he's coming he's not coming back he's arriving yeah to me so i think he gets my most improved pick if anybody but i think basil Shvili is a good also pick yeah comeback player of the year uh the nominees are Djokovic, who went from 12 to 3 and obviously had a lot of injury and can't, was as low as 22 this year jason kubler who has had a lot of injuries uh and for a long time didn't play on hard courts at all he went this year from 337 to 91 wow it's pretty good john millman again 120 to 34 kenny shikori uh was as low as 39 this year. is now 12 and getting higher because we've had a couple runs since this numbers came in. And also the last one is Yoshihiro Nishioka, who had a bad ACL tear last year in Miami and was out for quite a while. And this year has risen from 380 to inside the top 100. So again, like this one, this award always frustrates me because like, how do you judge like, yeah injury bravery comeback right like i don't know how you say is Djokovic better than nishioka right i just don't know how to compare those yeah it's tough i would i would would go with nishioka me too just because the injury was so bad um like he he was clearly gone like yeah that's what comeback is like you're gone and yeah um Whereas, I mean, Nishikori and Djokovic were hurt last year, but, like, they still, before they were hurt, they still had, like, decent years. Like, they didn't, like, disappear. Um, 
and their injury. I mean, like you said, it's tough to compare injuries. What's worse than another? But I think Nishioka's is just was so well documented as being terrible, um, and what he's done to come back from that is is really impressive. Like I just don't feel like Djokovic and Nishikori were like away for long enough to like justify them coming back. Yeah, and that's right. I, I would go Nishioka too. Yeah. Um, but again, there's no no wrong picks here, and I assume yeah. Djokovic will win. Yeah, because uh, the top, the most popular guys win all these awards, which brings us right. to the Stefan Edberg Sportsmanship Award, which will, I'm sure, be renamed the Roger Federer Sportsmanship Award as soon as he retires. Yes. Because Roger Federer has won this, like, all but one year. Yeah, it's been not, in, not existed, all it all won at once. Yeah. But the no, there's way more nominees this year. They really flooded the pool of nominees. <laughs> um, so it's really... For, an, for no reason. It's an insult if you're not on this list, basically, yeah. this year. Uh, and the nominees are... Kevin Anderson, Hyun Chung, Del Potro, Dimitrov, Djokovic, Federer, Melman, Nadal, Nishikori, Ronich, Schwartzman, Shapovalov, Dominic Team, or write in. Like, as if you need to write in someone else besides those 15 <laughs> people. Uh, first of all, I love that you could give a Melman sweep on your ballot That's if you wanted to. Yeah. And you can make a question for all the awards because he's a great sportsman. Oh, yeah. He's like, just like, to me, Melman is the kind of person who should be winning this award. Yeah. Like, I thought the, when the award was most meaningful, was the year they nominated Tim Smichek. Right. When it was a shorter ballot, first of all. And Smichek had that outstanding moment against Nadal at the Australian Open and like had this moment of exemplary sportsmanship. Like to me, that's that's means a lot more when you could point to like an action. Yeah. And maybe some of these guys did have it. And I almost wish there was something like a blurb for like like why we nominated this person. Oh yeah, that'd be good. That'd be good for this award. Um but it's just their names. I would like I, to see I, I mean like Anderson is unimpunable sportsmanship. Yeah, I mean, he almost won, almost Anderson all, won the the U.S. Open Sportsmanship Award. That may yeah. have been last year, but yeah, but yeah, like all so many of these guys. I think Isner won it this year, maybe Isner, yeah. Um, and Isner's not on this, not nominated for this award. Which again, there's no reason for him not to be. Yeah, he doesn't do anything unsportsmanlike. And most of these guys, so many guys have clean sheets. I, I mean, honestly, I think you could make Shapovalov is a comeback sports, sportsman <laughs> of the year <laughs> after nearly blinding Arno Gavras. Right. Yeah, I mean, some of these guys have had moments of of iffiness for sure. Um. And gamesmanship for yeah. sure but it's just a tough award i i, I, always, I always feel like team should have won one by now i mean team, I, obviously, team, obviously, team, obviously no one other than fed wins but if anyone i'm not sure team's been wins. nominated before uh he's on this nomination he like, consistently like he's points. the only one who consistently concedes points when they should be conceded Djokovic does it too Djokovic will do it yeah team so, consistently does it yeah he does it a lot and he's always just gracious loser and generally yeah. seems like a nice guy also we are currently enamored with Dominic Team's second Instagram yes, account. Yes, we are. <laughs> at More Domi Team on Instagram, in which Dominic Team shares his unexpected and deep love of animals. Yeah. And just like, here's a picture of otters. Aren't otters great? Yeah. Here's a whale. I didn't know if I told you what animal it was today. It was a uh, whale. Oh, nice. I'm trying to remember he guessed the animal. Uh, it was a whale today. And it, whales That's are That's sportsman like in a way. I mean, yeah, yeah saving the earth. And, 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 yeah. and Kevin Anderson is doing his whole, I think Robin Hassa sort of started it, but Kevin Anderson's been carrying this whole like, Less plastic in the yeah. It, which let's get rid of the plastic uh, bag coverings over the newly strung rackets. Which yeah, yeah great. That's part of. You now there's a definition. They give a definition for this award, which is to the player who throughout the year conducted himself at the highest level of professionalism and integrity, who competed with his fellow players with the utmost spirit of fairness, and this is unrelated completely, who promoted the game through his off-court activities. That last one has nothing to do. With sportsmanship in my mind, like if no. you promote the game, like if you go on a talk show, you get points for that. Like that to me has nothing to do with sportsmanship <laughs> no, at all. No, not at all. Um, and that's something that Djokovic is, for example, very good at doing those sort of appearances, and he's he's generally pretty good with. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I hate this award. I hate this award with a deep passion. Same. I think the media should not vote for it. I think the players should vote for it. And I think they should. I think that Roger Federer should take himself out of the running for it. Because <laughs> so, how, how can you, how can you like with a straight face win this award every single year? Right. And like feel like you're not being a dick. Yeah. You know, like how, how and not, Federer is not, a good sportsman, but he doesn't like go, he doesn't generally. Yes. But and he's also, and he's also, foundation he's also not all. a great loser. No, he's not a great he's, loser. He will always crap on his opponents after a loss. Yeah. Pretty much always and he gets upset at umpires yeah he gets plenty of upset. i mean like he's not perfect he's not, he's not bad he's not noticeably better than other people he's not noticeably but, so far away the best right in a way that i think kevin anderson for example is impeccably great at this category i think kevin and dominic team and millman and millman should yeah. be the top three uh, for they sure. will not be the top three it'll be no. federer again and <laughs> i ask you why i uh, just prepare to roll your eyes it's gonna be uh, stupid yeah. Yeah, it's brutal yeah um actually we, we decided uh in the spirit of us talking about who's having a bad year we were going to go through the flip side of the ballot and oh, and nice. go through some nominations of um the most uh the opposites of these these awards so the uh least sportsmanlike the uh the, the most deproved most worsened player yeah. of the year and uh the disappearing the, act and the disappearing act like who just went away yeah the gone award yeah um i think deproved we talked about at length i think it's sock sock <laughs> i mean yeah. uh we also didn't forget to mention the name philip krainovich in terms of someone else Ooh. who hit a wall who made a final of paris last year and hasn't has had been injured yeah. at, at like sporadically throughout the year at all like the worst moments pretty much and he looked so tight today playing in paris having his entire rank to defend. I felt he, like, he was not, I felt bad. For he him. was not happy. It made me loss. nervous for sock too. Yeah. And that like sock, if, if Krajanovic is suffering this much, sock will be probably even worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, sock puts Krajanovic to shame. So sock is there. I think Dimitrov is in the, is in the worst category for sure. Yeah. Uh, some smaller, some quieter ones. Uh, I think Dustin Brown has had a really bad year. Uh, he's gone away completely. He's way outside the top 200 now, I think. Yeah. He might, he's also up for the disappearing category. Yeah, but he's kept playing, I think. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, and the other one, who's one of my favorite players, I discussed him the other night, Alexander Bublik. Just an absolute phenomenal player. Made top 100 briefly last year. Such a fun guy. And his results this year have been horrific. And I, with both Brown and Bublik, they're not around enough for me to know if they've been struggling with like lingering injury or something. Um, but yeah, they've had bad years. Actually, you know who I meant? Now that I'm thinking about it, you know who's had a, who I think should be like a most improved nominee this year is... Uh, I guess it's a really good ballot this year, but Sangren should be on there, right? Ooh. Yeah, he probably should. He probably should be. Anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, gone Away. Some nominees are Sanga. Been gone most all the year. He's kind of, he's made a reappearance late in this fall, but no successful results. No. He's gone away. Duty Sela went away. Oh, wow. I haven't thought top about him in ages. Yeah. Uh, Rendy Lou. Was top 100 at the beginning of this year and has not played. Only played two matches in challengers this year, three matches. Unfortunate. Uh, is pretty much gone. Uh, Thomas Burdich been hurt, so he'd be. These are all players who optimistically will be comeback players next year. But for right now, <laughs> are just gone. Yeah. Andy Murray's been pretty a wall after finishing. God, he finished 27, 2016, right at number one. Twenty sixteen at number one, yeah, won the world. And he was still number one at Wimbledon twenty seventeen. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and then he's pretty much been gone. Oh yeah, because he got he went on that 2016 fall run where he yeah. never lost a match. Yeah, and got all of his points. So or he was kind of a prelude to a sock. Uh, Thomas Bellucci has also disappeared. I don't know what's happened to him, but he's gone. Uh, this was hard to come up with this list actually. Thinking of who's not here, I'd go through the rankings and be like, "Wow, you're much lower than I thought you'd be." Yeah, and Doga Polov uh, is another person. That's not that surprising though, just because he's so injured. He's all up and time. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think all those players are in good shape. And anyone who's been like the most gonest of all. 
you think? Actually, I mean, Randy I feel Lou, like, like Randy, Randy Lou. I think is the most gone. Right. No one mentioned him. No. I one, feel like Duty too. Duty too. But, but Lou for me even further. Yeah, I don't think Murray's in the running for like to win this category because like played, everyone, everyone, he, he played. Well, he's played a lot, and like everyone knew he was going to be gone. Yeah. Like but Lou for me is the most disappeared. I think Song is up there too, he's and it's unfortunate yeah. because obviously he's good for the game. All right, least sportsmanlike. I have some names written down here we came up with last night, but who comes to mind for you uh, when you think of least worst sportsman? Wow, that's tough. Um, and what makes a bad sportsman? Uh, in tennis, you're talking about? Yeah, of course. I mean, racket breaking, bad to ball mm-hmm. kids, bad to ball kids. Uh, this is like bad, the, bad to umpires. This is the new like moral panic in tennis is ball game mistreatment right well um, which we've seen a fair amount recently oh yeah and especially in the age of gifts like yeah. it's so easy to make these to capture these <laughs> moments and make them look horrible right um verdasco got called out and then blocked the guy who made the made the made the gift and actually interestingly um Sitsipas had one in basel yeah where he his was nowhere to me nowhere near as bad as verdasco's no, no, Verdasco was like screaming at this child yeah um but Tsitsipas was like walking away and like trying to pull at the uh he racket, tried to pull his racket out, out of the, the, the plastic sleeve and i think yeah. she was like hanging onto it decently tightly and sort of yeah. like yanking like yeah. a bit violently away from it and just looked kind of nastily snatching at it yeah Tsitsipas, in a similar vein to Verdasco, i don't know if you saw this today Tsitsipas wrote to the person who wrote the gift and asked him to take it down oh wow he's like can you please take down this video there's nothing positive for people to see here oh wow after sort of apologizing for it, well, you should have thought of that before doing it. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, and then someone was like, someone tweeted the gift in the response, like, "Good luck getting this off the internet" or something like that. <laughs> so it's a hopefully it's, it's a boss who knows a lot about the internet will will learn that he cannot control his image. The person I think did listen and did take it down. Yeah, because I guess you feel intimidated by that request. But um, it'd be nice to ball kids for sure, and that's yeah. to me why I think my my answer, which would make Nick Curious very happy, oh, Nick Curious could be in this conversation for sure. But um, uh, every year. My, my, my first thought was Verdasco. Yeah. Uh, Verdasco has a couple bad ball kid moments for sure this year. Was involved in a match that's being investigated by TIU at Wimbledon this year. Was um, in a dust-up with Tennessee Kokonakis and his father at Miami this <laughs> yeah. year. Uh, to me, Verdasco. And it's just generally whiteness. It's also had the incident with Andy Murray at the U.S. Open. Uh, and the whole, did he get coached? Did he not? Yeah. Who was telling the truth? Whatever. So for to me, uh, Fernando Vasco wins the... Uh, Ilya Nastasi Worst Sportsman Award. <laughs> How about you? Who, who do you who do you pick? Uh, I mean, I like I like that for Dasco pick. Um, There's some classic g- ones here, like Fanini. I think is probably people yeah. think should be. He actually had a, per his standards, not a horrible year. Yeah, I mean, like people like Fanini and Tomic are they kind of get like lifetime achievement awards. Yeah. Whereas Verdasco had some clear like specific incidents. Sock is bad. Sock is bad. Sock is bad at yeah. this. Sock is very whiny. But we can't pile on. His year was so no, bad. No, he's going to win the other. He win most deproved. He gets right. a Milman-esque <laughs> sweep of the other category. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, but he... Sock, Sock is bad to umpires. Really nasty to Paula Sousa and uh, Vieira Sousa in Paris. Uh, whiny with other players. Antagonistic. I mean, he wasn't around enough to have that many fights, honestly. He was gotten a jolly match with Golbus. Yeah. Um, Medvedev is another... I was going to say, Medvedev is... Medvedev is at, another one at, who... At a young age, he's close to racking up a lifetime achievement award. But yeah. I feel like this year, he he, been he, he's been worse in previous years. Yeah, he's so getting I, better. So I don't feel like he can get the award this year. Of really top players, the ones who I think is most in the mix is... Um, and it's not he's not on the level of these other people, but I would never call Sasha Zverev a good sport. No. I, I think that he's but constantly it, whiny. Yeah. He's very gamesmanshipy in terms of like trying to change momentum of matches. 
I remember so clearly he in playing David Goffin in Rome. I think quarters, maybe semis, quarters, semi. Anyway, um, like smashed his racket at, at right before he was about to face break point, and like, or I think I think roughly it was an important point. He broke his racket and like so slowly walked his chair <laughs> to get it, and like just like completely. I I was watching it and being like, this will change the match completely. Like Goffin will freeze here, and like that's exactly what happened. And Goffin barely won another point the rest of the match. And his he's he's not great with chair empires. He's, he's, I, I think he, I think I think Zverev is is not especially not good. Oh, and another another thing was Zverev. I don't, I can't remember how many times he's done it this year, and it may be more in previous years. But he also gives no credit to opponents when he loses in post match interviews. Mm. It's always I played terrible. It's the worst match I've ever played. Like when he lost to Chorich last year at the U.S. Open. He did to Sitsipas this year. Sitsipas this year in Canada. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I'm. I, that's that goes more to the Federer knock, which I guess is which is true for for him. I I for Zverev to me that always falls a little bit, and obviously the Williams just do it too yeah. famously, or they yeah. have done it in the past. For me, it goes a little bit more towards honesty, and like if you just and if you do think you are that great that every match depends on you, like okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I, I think they could all be better, yeah. and uh, I would love to see these awards. I would I love to, maybe this would be That'd the be NCR great. anti awards. Uh, we can do them because I think they're just. I think like with the Sanford equation, you can talk about who the most interesting is. There's also an answer who's most boring. Yep. And definitely the sportsman like ones. Uh, yeah, same thing. And good for social media purposes. Yeah, people like stuff like this. Definitely. Last person. Uh, last thing on the show. There've been a lot of players this year who will win uh, most retired. He has a lot of people retired. It was after. I mean, and this wasn't the biggest stars retiring for the most part. But I feel like there's been a sort of a dam building up of a lot of players getting ready to retire, yeah. careers lasting so long. And on the men's side, there were quite a few names that a casual tennis fan would probably know that retired this year. Uh, in no particular order, Mikhail Yuzhny, Julian Beneteau, uh, Gilles Muller, David Ferrer, who still he says he's going to officially retire in Madrid next year, but he's kind of called it quits this year. Yeah. Said his last slam was at the U.S. Open, although... It's a little weird because he's playing Auckland, but I guess he could play Auckland and not Australia anyway. Yeah. Uh, Florian Meyer uh, is retired. Uh, Jurgen Meltzer retired in Vienna, apparently. And Daniel Nestor was like the most winningest doubles guy of all time. Yeah. Um, who of those will you miss the most and, and why? Probably Ferrer. I mean, his peak, you know, he's retiring now, like, and everyone's like, yeah, it's time to retire. But you need to remember how great he was in his prime and like he got his most he got so much out of his talent level he He, didn't he he didn't though like for me with ferrer ferrer was so frustrating because ferrer was so good at getting to late rounds of slams yeah and other tournaments and then not putting much of a fight and maybe maybe he was just that much worse than the big four Maybe. I mean, the most obvious example is against Nadal at the French Open, where you can't. Oh, I mean, you, you can't. But you. But did anyone expect anything different? No, but that was part of the sad part. Like no one ever thought that match would be good, and then it sucked. To me, that's one of the worst Grand Slam finals of the decade. Is Ferrer's one Grand Slam final? Right. And Ferrer, but it wasn't supposed to. I mean, Ferrer uh, won something like I'm not Ferrer level. Ferrer listeners will know, but Ferrer won something like 27 titles, and I think in like only three of them was any of the big four in the draw. Yeah, and like never did he beat the big four on the way to a title, and he won a Masters title, um, but it was against Shirtu Janovic. It was sock esque, actually. It was like sock. It was we played like Janovic, and then uh, I don't remember who. In the, anyway, he played Janovic in the final, yeah. which is Krajinovic esque probably, and 
I think I, I think he's very admirable, but I will not miss him because for me, a bit like Sampras, he was someone who would reliably get to deep rounds, and I wouldn't be interested. Yeah, I just, I mean, I'm, I admire him very much in the abstract. I'll miss him because I, I like I, I like his tenacity and yeah. what he. I mean, he he was in the he was Nadal esque in terms of he brought it every point. He want, he wanted to win. No, that's what um, you're looking for. He was that. Yeah. yeah. Very fully. Uh, I'll miss the Eugenie celebration, the great, the great sergeant salute, one of the greatest tennis celebrations there is. Um, and I, and I'll miss Eugenie. I mean, his in his prime, he was fun to watch play. His yeah. backhand was close to as good as it gets back in the mid two thousands. Um. So yeah, I'll miss him. And the Mueller. obviously the very famous Mikhail Eugenie, uh, racket smashing on his head. It's iconic. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, one of the best moments oh, yeah. of the sport this this century. Oh, definitely, maybe number one. Yeah, um, definitely Mueller. I mean, he was he was up. He was I like pr- Mueller prone to blowing off upsets, so he brought some interest to every time he took the court. He was interesting uh, in draws for N- sure. Yeah, he was interesting in draws. Exactly. Nadal fans are not sad to see him go. No, neurotic um, fans if they're still around. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, Mueller. Mueller, I feel like is a loss, and one of the nicest guys on the tour. Yeah. Also, Jill Mueller, just the nicest guy on the tour. Yeah. And he can he did so well to come back from so many injuries. Yeah. So he's he's a guy to look up to. Um who else is on that? Mueller Mueller's probably my most. So the rest yeah. were Florian Meyer, who's a fun player, weird player, weird career arc. Yeah. Um I was there when he won Hala, which was the biggest title of his career. It was a very random win for him. Um he's great on grass, not very good on hard courts at all. Um pretty good on clay, but like a grass specialist and kind of a weird throwbacky player. Uh, Jurgen Meltzer, solid enough Mel- player. Yeah, I mean Meltzer's peak was really good, but I feel like he's like he's been gone already for so long yeah. that like no one's really gonna. And Daniel Nestor had a really bad year. Daniel Nestor yeah. hung on for a very long time, um, but obviously his peak was it was very good. He wasn't necessarily my favorite doubles player to watch per se. I don't think he had a ton of charisma. Yeah, on court, but um, but he was I can't deny the results. I mean, of solo doubles players in our lifetimes, he's the best. I mean, yeah. he's up there with the Brian in all the yeah. categories, and he did it with multiple partners, and for a long time was very, very good. Um, yeah, so my pick would be Mueller in this group. Benito, I always sort of, I, I never had any problem with Benito. Benito, I always sort of enjoyed. Um, Everyone loved talking about his 0-10 lifetime in finals. I know, so. that's rough. And it's Benito title watch. <laughs> the drama of whether or not he would ever win a title is finally over. Never did. Obviously, he was a great doubles player, won yeah. French Open in doubles. Uh, Davis Cup was a good. I guess he's not playing Davis Cup final. I assume not. I don't know. He's been kind of like weirdly on the fence, retired, not retired this whole. Right. Fall. I think that yeah, it's Davis Cup related. I think and he's it, now he, French Fed Cup captain, which is very random. I don't get that, but good luck to you, Julian, with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, getting Garcia and Benavides to get along that should be entertaining. And then Cornet for stability. My God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a. It's. Yeah, I think they're none of them. I'm happy to see go per se. I, I had my Ferrer frustrations, which I just voiced, but you know they were they were good. All of them like solid background people in the big four era. Like they all, I think every one of them at least once pulled off an upset one of the big four to slam. Not Benetton. Benetton had a great five setter against Federer, Federer Wimbledon, at Wimbledon, yeah. but Meltzer beat Djokovic at the French, French Open. Open yeah. Florian Meyer, I maybe he didn't. Florian Meyer didn't have one, but he was a good player. Ferrer did it several times in a doll. Um, Sometimes retirement induced, but, yeah. but a couple legit. Muller, a couple during Dahl, yeah. um, and Roddick. Roddick, who was essentially like a big four-esque guy, uh, and Eugenie beaten it all at the U.S. Open, yeah. and maybe another one. Eugenie was a borderline U.S. Open specialist. He absolutely loved that tournament. Yeah, yeah. so uh, anyway, good to see all these people there, and uh, or wish them all well, and uh, yeah, that's about it for us on SCR. Thank you, Ricky, for being here.
decently long episode. Yeah, thanks, th- thanks for having me. It's a good annual tradition this every every weekend this time of year. Hope you all got your men's tennis fix, and we'll Courtney and I will circle back to the men after London probably when we record or right before London or whenever, and wrap it up and, and Davis Cup and ah Davis Cup. Are we gonna talk about Croatia France? Uh, odds are no. <laughs> No, we probably. That's the last. That's the last. It's the last final of its kind. So. Yeah, but it's. But nah, yeah, it is what no. it is. It actually could be okay, but none of the French guys are playing well at all. No, French men's tennis is at a horrible year. No French man has made a, a quarterfinal of a slam this year, and they could wow. win. They could win Davis Cup. Wild. Wow. What is Davis Cup? Who knows anymore? Um, I'm excited to see the new version. I am. I. I. I, I will. I'm if, not. I mean, yeah. The last few years. If, if nothing else, it's something new. Which exactly. Is, which is what it needed exactly and thank you ricky follow along with you on twitter hopefully you get your twitter account back soon that'd be nice. to, that's my rant rave for this episode that'd be nice free dominator uh, set them free get those emails sent to twitter yep. very soon yeah and we will see you guys later thank you yeah thanks you have, ben. you have an outro song pick sorry you have an outro song pick uh um ricky don't lose that number so <laughs> i lost my twitter but <laughs> not my, not, hopefully not my number <laughs> <laughs> <Good pick. laughs>